So, we are here in the, the Gospel according to Mark again. Um, the two last times I preached on Mark, we looked at chapter 1. And there we looked at the coming of the king and uh, this coming of this mess- messianic figure who the Bible speaks about, the, the Messiah or the Christ as the Greek is. And how Mark showed us that this was indeed Jesus. We saw Jesus, this king and his messenger who prepared the way for him, John the Baptist, or some Presbyterians call him John the Baptizer, uh, jokingly. uh, And he came preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus was then baptized and we saw the heavens torn open. And we heard the audible voice of God saying, This is my beloved, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus then was in the wilderness, and we get this summary statement of what the Gospel of Mark is. In Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And there I argued that the Gospel is ultimately about the kingdom of God invading earth in the embodiment of Jesus Christ And in the second sermon, we looked at uh, Jesus calling disciples, healing a man with an unclean spirit, preaching and cleansing a leper. And in it, he showed that he truly was king, having authority over men, sickness and demons. And it all showed how teaching was Jesus' main point, not the healing, although he gave that willingly. But he actually left people unhealed to go preach more in another place. So this is where we pick up in today's sermon in Mark, Mark 2. Mark returns the story to Capernaum, where we'll see some more insights into the authority of Jesus. And the question I am looking at today, or trying to answer, is what is lawful? What is lawful? And this regarding people, feasting and fasting, and especially the Sabbath. Out here um, in the streets all over, we have parking signals, we have signs, we have lights, and they all say what the law is regarding driving. They say you can drive this fast and not faster. You can drive on the right side or the left side, depending on where you are. And you can take a right turn, but not a left turn. Those are the rules. It is lawful to obey those rules. If a policeman comes and he waves you ahead even though you see there's a red light and he's saying drive on is it then lawful or not lawful to obey his command or the sign the policeman is the embodiment of the law in this case and he supersedes his voice is greater than the voice of the sign he says the law is drive 30 or stop, or go there. But I say, now that I, the law embodiment, is here, follow me instead of the sign that you see up here. So that's why the police officer, or sometimes a work, uh, construction worker can say, come on, go there, or stop, you cannot go here. Because they are the law embodiment. Just keep that in mind as we go through this text, because in this text today, we will see law embodiment come to earth. We will see Jesus, the Son of God, and he will call himself, I am the Lord over, I am the Lord over, I am God. 
So the title of today's message is then, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And we, in this portion of Scripture, will look at five stories. And I have broken it down into three sections. So there are therefore three points. There's not a, you have to have three points in every sermon, but apparently that's what it usually comes down to. <laughs> I don't know if that's, no, I won't joke about it. I will deal with first that Jesus, the Son of Man, can forgive sin. Uh, and I'll get back to these when we get there. The second point, the Son of Man is feasting with sinners. The Son of Man is feasting with sinners. And my third point, sinners feasting with the Son of Man. Sinners feasting with the Son of Man. The first point then, Jesus, the Son of Man, can forgive sin. And we direct our attention to chapter 2 in the beginning, where the first story is about Jesus who heals this paralytic. Jesus and his disciples, they return to Capernaum after having been gone for some time, and uh, they get back home. Uh, people get wind of it, and they rush to where Jesus is. Uh, Jesus used Capernaum as his home base for the most time of where we will be in Mark. And some say that he, he got to live in Peter's house. But, uh, so they were home, they were in a house, and people got wind of it, and they rushed to it to hear him preach and teach, and probably many come, came there to be healed. In uh, the last chapter, Mark 1, verse 28, it says that if after Jesus drove out the demon of the demon-possessed man, it says, and, all, and his, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So wherever Jesus was, he drew a crowd. So let us today join this crowd in beholding what takes place in this section. We have heard that Jesus is back in town. And uh, this person who performs wonders, healings, and exorcisms, and he teaches not like the scribes and the Pharisees, but with, as one with authority. So we, we hear that he's at this house. We get there early. We get seats inside or sit at the, at the door, at the, on the floor. And uh, it's usually these one-story buildings with a flat roof on it. And uh, it says that the house was packed, the door full, like people were gathering outside just to hear what was being said. And as we sit under this teaching or preaching, we don't get to know what Jesus here is teaching on. Mark is directing our attention to the, the action around it. So we're sitting maybe like this, and you notice some dirt starting to drizzle down from the, from the roof. And it's like, oh, what's that? well, don't worry about it. And you direct your attention back to Jesus. And then some more starts drizzling, and you hear this scraping noises. Not like an animal, like a mouse or anything, or a cat, but like there's some construction going on upstairs. Usually those flat houses were used as a porch or a deck or a terrace. So you'd have generally outside stairs leading up. They were built like that to have an extra room outside because of the climate is so temperate. They could use that as another room outside. And uh, by and by when we we're sitting there, listening to Jesus, we see a hole appearing and we can see sunlight coming through. We hear the breaking and the tearing and probably the sawing of weeds and reeds and uh, 
here you we can see the the roof opening up there were like there were usually beams across the the walls and they were stitched and woven with reeds and with sticks and uh, then they would compress mud on top of it so there are these four people we see after a while digging their way through the roof tearing asunder this uh, roof it was not just a oh there's a plank we'll just flip that over and we get access they actually destroyed the house the the roof of it and not just like this little bitty thing but we see a hole in the roof big enough for a bed to be lowered down and um, whatever Jesus thought of it he knew they were there obviously uh, and we we all heard it eventually and he sees and we see this man being hoisted down by these four men and the bed plumping down beside Jesus and uh, and our reaction then of it can be anything from astonished to outraged or like what is going on and but Jesus he he reacts by just looking up at them seeing the guy and he says to him son your your sins are forgiven why did Jesus say that apparently out of a sudden like the man is paralyzed he needs healing like that's why they got him here that's why they tore up the house the the roof of it to get him to Jesus so that he could heal them and off to the side we see a, a bunch of scribes and Pharisees looking everything from perplexed to angry. Verse 6 in our text says that they were questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The next thing we hear Jesus say is, Why are you questioning these things in your hearts? Which is easier for him to say? your sins are forgiven, or say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So it says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The paralytic then we see stands up. We, this, he's paralyzed. That is what the paralytic is. One who cannot move, cannot walk. He has to lay in his bed. And this, these friends have carried him to this house, lowered him down. And Jesus says, rise up and walk to bring your bed with you. And uh, the astounding thing is that he does it. It's not a like, oh, I have a, I have a bad ulcer or uh, I have some problems with my intestines or something invisible or I have chronic neck problems or anything that's not visible he is there we can see if healing takes place or not and it would be evident but so jesus says so that you may know that i can do this one thing i'm going to do another thing to prove that i have authority and power here so the paralytic stands up picks up his bed walks out and everybody's in amazement glorifying god so let us zoom out again from this house what is the big point here of this story why does mark include it have faith and jesus will heal you be a faithful friend well they are true in their own sense 
people have experienced healings and can, and people experience things that cannot be fully explained. And yes, one should always be a good friend, a faithful one. But the point, the main concern of this paralyzed man was not his physical illness. The main concern of this paralyzed man was his spiritual illness. His inward man was sick, first and foremost. Because if, it, if the paralyzation had been the most important thing, then Jesus would say, I heal you. And that would be the end of the story. But he says, son, be healed. Son, here, in, well, in Norway, we do not use that way of talking much. But I've heard other countries say that if someone says son, then that could be, of course, he is a parent. Whether it can also be someone in age speaking to younger or one in authority speaking to one not in. So, oh, son, come here. Let's, let me help you. But this is the way Jesus does it here. He's speaking from one who has authority to one that has not. But so the friends brought him here and they thought, oh no, all this work, digging up this roof, and all he says is, your sins are forgiven? Is that it? I thought he was this wonderful healer guy that could just make all these problems go away. But Jesus knew that the man's real need, his greatest need even, was not that he be healed physically, but spiritually. Later in Mark, Jesus is going to say it himself. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. So there's nothing wrong with physical healing. But Jesus' point is, it's better to not be sinful, not be sinning, than to have a full body, in a sense. This was why Jesus' ministry was first and foremost to teach and preach, not necessarily to heal, although he did that abundantly. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need, it costs the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. Warren Wearsby. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. What about the bad guys? The Pharisees? Bad guys. They were right. They were basically right. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They are right. They are correct in what they are saying. This man is blaspheming, or he would be, had he not been who he is. Only God can forgive sins. As one of our Old Testament scripture readings said in Isaiah 43, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Or Psalm 32, 5, ah, I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God speaking. We are so quick to point to the Pharisees and says, oh, they're just awful. How could they be so... St- uh, how could they be so cruel and so harsh to what Jesus is doing? Many of the scribes and the Pharisees did hold to a twisted religion, and they, but they and we are right to question it if, if someone says they can forgive our sins or says anything of spiritual magnitude. 
were not only right to ask questions, but commanded to ask questions, were called to be discerning as the barbarians were. They were more noble because they searched the scriptures to see if it was so, and they were they were commended for it. But the fault of the Pharisees was not their conclusion that only God can forgive sin, and this guy is apparently claiming to be God. So he cannot be man and God, they thought. Their fault, their hard hearts. Jesus shows them that he can forgive sins because he is God. He even proves it to them. Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. It would be much easier to just say your sins are forgiven, right? Who is to prove otherwise? Let him just be carried out and no one could prove that his sins were not, in a sense, because no one one on earth can prove that otherwise. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to, to, to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The result of one, healing, implying since I have authority to do this, know that I have the authority and power to do the other as well. I am God. He even read their minds. Like, you question in your hearts this and that. Either he saw it on them, maybe he read something in their like posture or something, but he basically knew what they were thinking. Son of Man title, that the Son of Man has authority. Son of Man is Jesus' own most used description of himself in the Gospels. And it is a reference to Daniel seven, thirteen to 14. I'll read it here. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying over and over again, this is me. So the paralytic's sins are forgiven. So that Jesus, the son of man, can forgive sin. And as I quoted earlier, forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need, it costs the greatest cost, the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting result. This, teaches, this text teaches that Jesus claimed to be divine, to be God, and he proved it. I said earlier that the question today is, what is lawful? Was it lawful for Jesus to forgive sins? He is God, so yes, it is lawful. He, in a sense, excuse me the silly um, likeness, but he is the policeman who is there and says, yes, normally only God can forgive sin, and it is true, only God can forgive sin, but what you all are not understanding is that I am Jesus, I am God. So I am the law embodied here, I am God. The man's main problem was not that he was lame, but that he was sinful. R.C. Sproul, a late theologian, was once asked if he could, if he would join a psychiatrist in his workforce. And uh, Sproul said, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm a theologian. 
I'm a pastor. But the, and the psychiatrist told him that 95% of his clients didn't need a psychiatrist. They needed a priest because their lives were destroyed by unresolved guilt. And that was the main problem that they came to a psychiatrist with. This is my conviction also that most to all problems we face in this life is either unres- is unresolved sin against God primarily and also to our fellow man. Only by coming to Jesus, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Only by humbling ourselves, confession, confessing and turning from our sin, as we do often here, we can be made right with God and our fellow man. So the question then is, do you have anything unresolved? Resolved to put it right as soon as possible. Nothing eats, a much, eats as much away of a person as sin. Then we go to our second scene, and the second point, a shorter one. The Son of Man is feasting with sinners. The Son of Man is feasting with sinners. Looking at verses 13 to 17, if you have your Bibles, join me there. We now come to the calling of and the interaction with the fifth disciple in Mark's story. Last chapter, people followed him for his healing crusade, and now they're being taught by him by the sea. Verse 14 says, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. So, Jews were governed by Romans at this time, and uh, they collected tax from the Jews. And one way this was done was by taxing trade, taxing housing, putting taxes on a lot of things. And they collected it by these tax booths. So they were set up around trading and commerce areas. And one big one here is by the seashore, because as you might remember or not, last, the first time I said that, second time, second sermon, I said that the Sea of Capernaum was a big fishing hub. It was a lucrative business, and there was a lot of fish there to be had, and a lot of special fish that people actually travel to there to buy the fish. So these tax collectors were a greedy bunch. They were usually Jewish people who sort of bid to win the right to be a tax collector by the Romans. So you'd say, I will collect this much tax, or I will collect this much tax to you by this month or something. And uh, the Romans said, okay, you you can collect the tax for us. And whatever more they collected besides this would be their salary. So they would extort heavy taxes on their fellow Jews so that they would fill their quota that they needed to give to the Romans and that they would also have more on the side for themselves. The only thing they had to give up was national identity, social status, heritage, and membership in the synagogue because Jews, other Jews, viewed these tax collectors as traitors, as quislings. They were they were among the uncleanliest of people. They were hated. So this is where we are right now. And Jesus sees Levi sitting in his tax booth, and he calls to him to follow him. The, the text does not give much detail on what was said, or the reaction of Levi at the moment, or his reasons for following. But when Jesus beckoned, he followed him. Verse 15 says, And as he reclined at table in his house, in Levi's house, 
Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the text continues, says that when they saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Jesus' disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this was pretty scandalous in that time. If you interacted with someone or something unholy or unclean, you would, by association, become unclean as well, generally. The scribes were outraged. How can this man who claims to be God associate himself with sinners? The name Pharisee means the separated ones. They, were, they separated themselves from just about anyone and anything that they, that they deemed unclean. They truly thought that they were the ones worthy of God's love and God's blessings and God's care because they separated themselves from sin. Normal people shuffling about in their sinful ways, they said. Jesus then points to the obvious. Those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Who do you generally find at a doctor's office or hospital or emergency room? Doctors, nurses, etc. But you generally find sick people there. Did you hear about this doctor who went around avoiding sick and injured people? Neither did I. That is the job of a doctor or physician. It's to help people to heal people in a sense. And Jesus says, this is why I'm here. I am a doctor in that sense. I am seeking the lost. I am seeking the unholy. I'm seeking the sick. In the last chapter, he healed an un- outwardly unclean person, the leper. Now he's at a banquet with inwardly unclean people. And he's basically saying to the Pharisees, I'm treating them. They are my patients. Levi, for one, turned his life around and from his left his sin and followed Jesus. Jesus was in the world, but not of the world in that sense. He was of heaven. So as we be in the world, not of the world. So then the, the question, was it lawful for Jesus to visit sinners? What is lawful to do? I'll deal with the what is lawful in the next point. But Jesus did good to these sinners. It was lawful to do good, as Jesus himself will say. He was a physician towards the sick. He was healing them in another sense than physically. We too are often sinning. We too are often viewed by God doing the deeds of apparent tax collectors or sinners. Westminster Longer Catechism, question 24, asks, What is sin? And we also looked at the shorter catechism today. They're pretty similar. The answer, sin is any want of conformity unto or the transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. So, sin is not following a law, not coming under the rule of law, or directly crossing it and breaking it. If you want to study it more, you can read the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6, of the fall of man, of sin, and the punishment thereof. 
this church and every Presbyterian church who holds the Westminster Standards hold to these confessions and catechisms. And we confess the catechism here at the church. But our Bible text here does not specify the sins or the all the sins that they were guilty of or sinful of. But Jesus gave the general answer to the general problem. People who sin are sick and they need a physician. As I said, we are too often also sinning. Although I hold in good faith that most to everyone here is in order with God based on profession, I cannot see hearts and I cannot see those who listen to the recording later. Although we are Christians, we do sin. But the good news is, Jesus came to call not the righteous, but sinners. So if you're here sitting today, (coughs) having put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoice over the treatment that you're getting. He will give you medicine, listen to his word, and conform unto what he says that you should do. If you hear and obey what the doctor says, you generally become sick. <laughs> you generally become healthy. You become healed. This is just to keep, make sure that you're awake, or myself. <laughs> the good thing is with the great physician is that it's not you will generally be well, or hopefully you'll recover, but you will be clean. This is what Jesus proclaims over us, that you are clean, you are holy as long as I have removed your sins from you. If you are if you are here or are listening, who have not put your trust in Lord Jesus Christ, run to him now and find him to be an all-sufficient Savior. And again, if you have been cleansed, if you have bowed the knee to Jesus, do not harden your heart over the preaching of his word to help you, but bow to it. He loves to heal people. Outwardly, yes, but first and foremostly, inwardly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He loves his people. Now to the third point. Sinners feasting with the Son of Man. So we've looked at Jesus is the Son of Man, and he loves to feast with sinners. And now we'll see the opposite, sinners feasting with the Son of Man. You might look at the title that I gave the sermon, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, and think, what does this have to do with the Sabbath? You haven't mentioned the Sabbath yet. Let me string it all together here now. We have seen that Jesus is the Son of Man. Our first premise, Jesus, the Son of Man, is God, so he is Lord. The second premise, the Son of Man is feasting with sinners. He chooses whom he feasts with and what is lawful to do, because he is the law incarnate in a sense. We will now look at sinners feasting with the Son of Man. And it builds up to this holy day that we will visit here in our text. So the last three stories and the last point shows controversy regarding fasting, feasting, and healing in regards, and also in regards to the Sabbath. So verse 19 then, if you will. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, 
and they will and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine for fresh wineskins. So John and his followers fasted. So did the Pharisee and the Pharisees and their followers. So the question is then, why didn't Jesus and his disciples fast? Is that lawful to do then, to not fast? Or was it lawlessness for Jesus not to? The Pharisees, they fasted twice a week. But the only time in Jewish law fasting was required was during the Days of Atonement. Other traditions formed over time during National Days, Days of Mourning, and also associated with repenting. So, repenting people with fast. So, John's disciple, he proclaimed a, a baptism of repentance. So, they also fast because they repented from their way of life. But Jesus says that they missed a point. The Pharisees viewed it as a badge of righteousness, but, God said, but Jesus says that they missed it, and it has to do with the wedding. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Weddings in that culture and that time could last up to a week. I thought my wedding was long. It was a whole day almost. But a whole week? Ugh. During the celebration, they would have feasting and drinking and uh, activities and all these things. And it was, in a sense, a celebration, a great, great, grand celebration. And Jesus is saying, let's go to a wedding and not eat anything, not drink anything. He says, no, <laughs> that's not how you do it. When there's a f- wedding, you feast, you celebrate. But when the wedding is over, then you can fast. Some rabbis declared in that time that if the observance of any law came in the way of celebrating a wedding, it was lawful to feast instead of fast. But Jesus is saying something more here. He's saying that the bridegroom, used in the Old Testament about God, not Jesus. And he says that the the bride in Old Testament was used of the nation of Israel, not the church. But Jesus here, but we see in the revelation of New Testament that the bridegroom is Jesus and the bride is the, is the church. So Jesus here is saying that as long as he's here, it is a wedding feast. Again, saying that he is God because he is the bridegroom. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Jesus knew that his physical presence would not be with his disciples always at all times. And then it would be appropriate to fast again. I'm, I was tempted to speak more about fasting, but the text is pushing me onwards, and the point of the text is not of a Christian fast, but that Jesus is the true feast that we are to enjoy. If you'd like, it's a study worth of its own. Uh, but then this illustration of garments and wineskins, this is in relation also to the work and the person of Jesus. Uh, he's just saying, like, matter-of-factly, like, if you have a piece of cloth, and there's a tear, you want to patch it with a patch. But as we know, clothes, they shrink in washing and wear. So when they're shrinking, they reduce in size. And when you have already a used cloth, it is sort of finished shrinking after a while. It has settled. But if you then take a new patch of new, fresh 
clothes or cloth and sew it on the patch, this too will start to shrink. And when it does, it will basically tear whatever it's sewn on to, because that is, it's just doing what it's going to do. It's shrinking. So if you take an unshrunken cloth on a shrunken cloth, then the patch will tear away from the already uh, shrunk cloth and make a bigger hole. And he says also that with the wineskin, they would use new wineskins for new wine because wine ferment and gases are released. And so the wineskin is expanding. And wineskins made of leather, they can only expand to a certain point and then they would burst. So he's saying if you have an old wineskin, one that has already had new wine and it has been expanded to its breaking point, and if you then pour new wine in after you're done, it's going to expand even more until it breaks and you lose the wineskin and you lose the wine. And he's saying that if he's not condemning the Old Testament here and, and condemning the Pharisees' way of... Well, he is condemning the, some, the ways that some Pharisees behaved with the Old Testament. He's not saying that you should throw it away or that it's not good, but you, they need it to have their perspective and you to see that Jesus was he was doing something new the old had fulfilled its purpose in a sense so they needed a new wineskin for this new wine who came, that came the work of Jesus could not live in a pharisaical heart they needed a new heart because they were sort of spent in a sense speeding on scene 4 fasting verse 23 one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grains. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said, Have you never read what David did? And then he tells the story about David who went into the, how, the holy place and ate the showbread. And he gave it to his people, the, the men who were with him fleeing from King Saul. And he says, And the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. Jesus is here accused of breaking the Sabbath. What were they doing? That was the breaking of it, the unlawful thing. The law said, as we read in Deuteronomy fifteen twelve to 15, that the Sabbath was a day to be kept holy as the Lord God had commanded. And on it, if you do any work, you and your son or daughter or your male servant or a female servant goes on. You shall rest. You shall not work. Um, we know that the Bible says you are not to work on the Sabbath. There are some exceptions, though, to, um, to works of necessity and works of mercy, which you can study in our Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 21, where it speaks of works of necessity and works of mercy or works of grace so there are some uh, exceptions to it but generally we're called to not work on the sabbath but to rest and so they plucked grain which was also lawful to do according to deuteronomy 23 they were allowed to pluck grain to eat they were not allowed to pluck, pluck grain to sell or to bring in just as a, because i wanted to do it on a sunday i needed extra day to work so the Pharisees meant that they did it on the Sabbath. They worked on the Sabbath. They plucked grain on the Sabbath. 
they were supposed they were so concerned about keeping the letter of the law that they not they, they didn't keep the spirit of the law and in fact they even put their own laws around the law again so it says do not work and you shall do no labor on it they made so many silly laws to make sure that they were not even close to breaking the law that they added to the law they had this thing that is called the sabbath day's journey and some defined it as 1999 paces which is equivalently about 800 meters if you walked 2000 paces you would be working so you'd be sinning but as long as you kept it within 1999 you would not be sinning which is silly they would say that you could stitch one stitch in a garment but two that is working you could not carry anything over your shoulder or in your hand or on your back but if you could carry it on the back side of your hand that was not work you could even keep it on the f- the sole of your foot like no the top of your foot and if you could carry it on your foot then it was not work like that was so easy they you could uh it was so weird what they could do and what they couldn't do because they were more uh, they were more concerned with what the law said than what the law was there for and jesus is trying to reorganize their minds around it to say that the law is not so that you keep it in a sense the law is so that you do not so that uh, man is not made for someone to keep the law the law is there to help man in the same sense he says that the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath the sabbath didn't need men to keep it the sabbath was the rest day for man to enjoy it and to rest on it but they were so concerned about the do's and the don'ts that they they missed it all so the pharisees mean, meant that you couldn't harvest crops so jesus and the disciples were working by harvesting they were working by walking too much and it was like yeah da, 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 you cannot do this and jesus says have you read what david did he ate what was not lawful to do because it preserved the life of him and his fellow men so he says therefore the sabbath is for man not man yes not man for the sabbath Pharisees piled on commands not to what to do and what not to do. The Bible numerous times points out the hypocrisy of holding the letter of the law but not the full meaning and the spirit of the law. See for example Hosea 6:6 6, 6 and Isaiah Hosea 6:6 6, 6 and Isaiah 58. So the son of man is lord even of the sabbath. The lord of the sabbath was not offended by what the lord of the sabbath did nor his followers get that jesus says i am the lord of the sabbath and i say what is good to do and not remember the police officer you think it means follow follow this uh speed limit but now i say to you that this is what it's there for he's uh and then let us go to chapter 3 verse 1 to see our fifth and last story and again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand 
And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him for it. And they said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And also Jesus said to them, Is it lawful? He said to the man, Come here. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill, save life or kill? But they were silent. And they looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored to him. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with Herodians against them how to destroy him. I would love to speak more on the Sabbath, but the text here is not necessarily saying what you can or can't do. In that sense, it's saying that Jesus is the one who says what you can and can't do. In our church, we teach that we are to hold the Sabbath, and it's a good day. It's a rest day. Um, the Sabbath is a gift. It's not to wear yourself out by what can't I do? What can I do? What, what is too much? What is too little? It is, it is to keep people, animals, and the land from wearing out. It went from being a gift to being the strictest day of all. Therefore, Jesus says that I am the Son of Man. I, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not instituted by Moses it was instituted in creation when God hallowed it, consecrated it, and made it a holy day. Jesus is saying, I made it. It is mine. I decide what is allowed or not. Not you silly Pharisees with your silly arguments and laws. And then the question is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees are like, let's see if he heals or not. That is work, definitely. He cannot do that. Let's go and see that we can catch him in what he does. They wanted him to say, come back tomorrow, then I'll heal you. Is it lawful to do good? Here, Jesus, Jesus is basically saying, I am here doing good. And we know that they planned to kill him. Jesus was annoyed. He was furious. Not annoyed or like annoyed or sad. Oh, that's so sad. But he was outraged. My compassion will end, therefore, so do not harden your hearts. Rebellion towards God. So do we sometimes. Do not harden your hearts. He looked around them with anger, for they did not understand, but their hearts were hardened. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Finally then, Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And on it, he invites his people to feast. He is feasting with sinners. He's healing them. And so, we sanctified sinners made saints get to fast, get to feast with the Son of Man. It was lawful for the Son of Man to forgive sins, since he is God. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Be forgiven. And forgive others, I say to you, to do. Was it lawful for Jesus to be around sinners? Yes, it is what he came to do. He came to me and he came to you. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, so he gets to say what is lawful to do and what's not lawful to do. Rest, worship, do good, he says. Do not not work, do not earn money. And some would say, do not compete to seek your own glory, but his And like the people of Israel in the wilderness lived, they always got enough food. 
to last the Sabbath so that they could rest and do no work in it. Rest you too and depend on the Lord of the Sabbath for your needs. Then truly we can enjoy him and glorify him forever. Let us pray.